This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. A pandemic year marked by hardship and death has reached Memorial Day. We honor sacrifices made mainly abroad in a year when too often the battlefield seemed to come home. We begin this hour on what the country considers sacred ground, where two-foot gravestones cover acres and acres. The greatest cure for self-pity in the world is Arlington National Cemetery. White chiclets in perfect rows protrude from manicured green grass. Obviously, there's a lot of people who made the ultimate sacrifice in, in war. If you're feeling sorry for yourself, you see what has, you know these people have sacrificed, and you get over it real fast. Arlington National Cemetery is well known, but the stories of the people buried here are often forgotten or neglected except maybe by those who know them and love them. Every time I go into the, the city, I would come back across Memorial Bridge and I realize that, you know, I, I drive by this spot every time I come back from D.C. along this highway that's by the wall where my dad is an urn. And so I always, as I pass by, yell, Yo, Pop! We've come with James Meek, an ABC News colleague whose father is an urn here. John Martin Meek, hospitalman, second class, United States Navy, Korea, 1929 and 2016, with a cross. John Meek is one of about 400,000 veterans and their eligible dependents buried at Arlington. There are service members from every one of America's major wars, from the Revolutionary War to Afghanistan and Iraq. Our visit followed President Biden's announcement about the end of the war in Afghanistan. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. You know, with the announcement of the war ending, this is the right day to come and visit the first casualty of the Afghan war, Mike Spann. The CIA did something unusual today. It confirmed in a very public way that one of its agents had been killed in Afghanistan. His name is Johnny Michael Spann, and he is the first American to be killed in action since the U.S. military campaign began. Mike Spann was a 32-year-old paramilitary officer in the CIA and among the first Americans dispatched to Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks. He was killed in November 2001 in a Taliban prison uprising. Mike Spann was the first to go down. He was a Marine veteran. And his stone says, Johnny Michael Spann, Captain U.S. Marine Corps. March 1, 1969. Killed in action on November 25th, 2001, CIA, Afghanistan. It is striking to be next to Mike Spann's grave. It's just interspersed. President Trump visited a grave just footsteps away from here, and it was the last World War I veteran to die. Then President Trump visited the grave of Frank Buckles in May 2019. Buckles was an Army corporal who drove an ambulance in France in 1918. The last of the World War I doughboys died in 2011 at the age of 110. The last one to die, and he's buried just footsteps away. And what struck me about that was that he was only footsteps away from Mike Spann, the CIA officer who was the first to fall. That's what it is to stroll through this place. While the planes from nearby Reagan National provide the soundtrack, it is a walking tour of American service, sacrifice, and valor. December 7, 1941. Well, let's go back a day, December 6th, 1941. There are these two young fighter pilots at Pearl Harbor. They did what 
young officers did in those days. They went out, put on their black tie, their tuxedos, and they went out and had a good time and uh, fell into their beds fully dressed. Ken Taylor and George Welsh. That morning, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and still wearing their tuxedos, they ran out to their field and jumped into their P-40 fighter planes and took off into the skies. Ken Taylor and George Welch were the first two American pilots in the air during the attack on Pearl Harbor and the first to shoot down enemy aircraft. Each of them, it's believed, shot down at least five or more aircraft. So Ken and George were the first two heroes decorated in World War II with the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the nation's second highest award for valor. Operator, get me Halle Eva Field, fast! George, George, get hold of the car, a truck, anything. I'm calling Halle Eva. I'll get on the starter planes, warm up the engines, go! Right. The exploits of Taylor and Welch were dramatized in the 1970 film Tora, 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 though in the movie they're wearing uniforms, not black tie. There in their army uniforms, he said, they decided to change it because nobody would believe we were wearing black tie fighting the Japanese. And a bullet went through his fuselage and nicked his leg, or some shrapnel nicked his leg, and, and bloodied him a bit. And we said, wow, Ken, so you were shot while you were fighting the Japanese in the skies over Honolulu. And he said, the worst part of it was they ruined a perfectly good pair of tux pants. There, amid the endless rows of the columbarium courtyard, is the niche for Kenneth Marlar Taylor, Brigadier General, U.S. Air Force, 1919 to 2006. A nondescript black marks an extraordinary life. In the long, sad roll call of casualties of the last 20 years of war since 9-11, most have been men, but there's certainly been women, too. And on December 30th, 2009... A Al-Qaeda operative who was considered a triple agent, they thought they'd recruited him. And so the CIA set up a meeting face-to-face with this guy and allowed his vehicle to drive into their camp, Camp Chapman in eastern Afghanistan. And he double-crossed them and detonated a car bomb, killing himself and seven CIA officers led by Jennifer Matthews. Jennifer Matthews was 45 when she was killed. Former CIA Director Michael Hayden recalled her work. Jennifer was a wonderful officer. She was part of this band of sisters. She was in this hunt before hunting bin Laden was cool. She goes back pre-9-11. So that, that's a, an extraordinarily brave woman who made the ultimate sacrifice. And her gravestone reads just simply, Jennifer Matthews, civilian, December 6, 1964, December 30th, 2009, Afghanistan. Not even to mention that she was in the CIA. You know, the first grave we visited here was Mike Spann, CIA officer, and it said that on his grave. But I, I, I gather that's how her family wanted it. And here she lies with mostly what appear to be people who died of illness or age, probably long after their service. Much like a CIA officer, Jennifer Matthews blends with her surroundings. People visit Arlington National Cemetery to pay respects, to contemplate the cost of war, to understand history. You can go to Kennedy's grave and the Tomb of the Unknown. They're all sort of in the same vicinity. We're here with my ABC News colleague, James Meek. The tourists go to see the changing of the guard. But the rest of the cemetery is pretty quiet, with the exception of Section 60. Section 60 is where the dead from the United States wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are buried. 17 years ago, this was an empty field. 
it's got to be at least 100 rows of tombstones. Headstones. If the cemetery was just this, it would be a lot. And the thing about this section is, this is not people who died of old age. These are people who fell in battle. I know at one time they called this cemetery the living cemetery because so many young people here. And the wars were still ongoing, so you still had casualties, people being buried here. So it was called the living cemetery because so many people were here visiting. Paula Davis still comes every Sunday, as she has for nearly the last 15 years since her only son, Justin Davis, was killed. Coming up on 15 years, you say, wow, you know, who who still remembers other than family and close family and friends. As in all of Arlington, each headstone in Section 60 tells a story. Private First Class Justin Davis was a 19-year-old infantryman when he was killed in Afghanistan June 25, 2006. It's comforting for me to come here and just sit and, you know, it helps keep life in perspective for me. This is my Arlington bag, and this bag was his... um, bag in school, in high school. (laughs) Can you believe it? Held up. Of course, I've done some stitching on it, but... (laughs) You've got all sorts of supplies in there. It's my Arlington bag. It's got scissors, it's got pictures, it's got tape. Each week, Paula tidies her son's headstone. She makes sure there's a laminated photo of him and flowers. Yeah, this is my little routine. Trim the grass. Trim the grass. Clean the picture off. And like I said, I do it for me. I just, you know, this is my way of remembering him and honoring him. And he didn't even like flowers. <laughs> so they stink. <laughs> She'll pause every now and again to look at her son's picture. Oh, it's just like, that's how I remember him. So serious, but knowing he's nothing but a big teddy bear. I said, why do you guys always look so mean when you take your pictures? He said, Mom, you can't be cheesing for the enemy. <laughs> Had he lived, Justin would be in his mid-30s now, but Paula still remembers him as a 19-year-old, eager to leave the Maryland town where he grew up and join the Army. I haven't seen him in 15 years. I haven't got a big bear hug, big magnetic smile. I haven't seen that, haven't gotten a hug, haven't heard that baritone voice. He wanted to be an infantryman. I said, why would you do that? You're my only kid. You know, he could not be deterred, and I tried. <laughs> I tried. So in the end, I, you know, I supported him. And, um, you know, he had no regrets once he got in. He had no regrets. It's been almost 15 years. Do you still remember the knock at the door? I didn't get a knock at the door. In June 2006, Paula Davis was on a business trip in Wyoming when a relative called saying someone from the Army wanted to speak with her. A casualty assistance officer found her in a hotel lobby. I was sitting there, and I remember uh, this guy in his Class A's coming into the hotel lobby. And I went, I jumped up, and I ran to him, and I said, I'm Paula Davis. I'm Justin Davis's mother. And he said, Miss Davis, United States, I don't know if he said military or Army, is sorry. And it just became, no, no. Justin Davis died fighting with the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan's Korangal Valley, known as the Valley of Death, because four dozen U.S. service members had been killed there before the U.S. pulled out in 2010. You think back of what I could have done maybe to stop him or deter him. You know, I supported him. I didn't like it. 
that supported him. And now this is your life. And now this is my life. And I don't like it. But I learned how to deal with it, come to terms with it. You know, people say, oh, you go to the cemetery, you got to move on. And I said, well, I'm not, I have moved forward. It's not that, you know, I'm not here wallowing on the ground. For me, it just helps me to deal with my reality. Coming here is better therapy. For me. For you. Yes. You know, I did the grief counseling. I did the uh, therapist. I did the psychiatrist. Coming here, for me, it's just everything. It helps me keep things in perspective. And I think it helps ground me in reality. And it helps me to come here and meditate and and reflect. This is This is my life now. Do you ever think you'll stop coming here? It's hard to say. You know, I, at one point I said, I can't imagine me ever stopping. But I don't know because in the beginning, I was here twice a week when it, when he was buried here. And oh, probably for, you know, for I don't know how long I would, you know, after I went back to work, I still was here on weekends. That went on for a while. And now I go, sometimes I, I go two weeks just because other stuff life has happened that I can't get here every week and in the beginning it bothered me he's going to be forgotten I can't even you know get to go there and make sure his grave is looks nice you know and then now it's you know it's like okay it's okay does it get easier I'm sure you've run into families who are coming here for the first time or yeah I don't know if easier is the word. I think you you come to terms with it. You're not in shock anymore. You're not uh, grieving as intensely as you were in the very beginning. That has kind of smoothed out. But you you it's it's still hard. And so she comes with her scissors and her flowers and camp chair, shoes off in the sun, to visit with her boy and to warmly greet other parents she has come to know well. You got these people that you see <laughs> all, you know, when I'm here, he's here, or, you know, special days, he's there. We don't plan to meet up, but we always do. <laughs> You've heard of Band of Brothers. Paula Davis said she's part of a band of mothers. Oh, my goodness gracious. So is Janice Chance. Every day for a gold star mother is a day. It's a memorial day. A few rows away from Justin Davis is Janice Chance's son, Jesse Melton. When they came to, came to my house, I would never forget. I didn't want to see them, but I said, you know, I was kind of expecting you. I didn't want to see you. Um, just tell me my son's only been wounded and not killed. And they said, ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son's been killed. And I said, you know, what can I say? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From that point on, I was looking, I said, I'm going to make sure Jesse is honored and not remembered. Marine Corps Captain Jesse Melton III was 29 when he died in Afghanistan September 9, 2008. He was returning from a combat mission with another Marine, a Navy corpsman, and an Afghan interpreter when they were killed by an enemy bomb. The rest of them were dead immediately. Jesse was alive. He was on fire. They had to put the fire out. He was still alert. Enough to say, oh my goodness, I'm dying. Captain Milton, Captain Jesse Milton III. His mom posted video online of Captain Milton's final roll call. To Arlington, she brings a poster-sized photo of her son 
and recollections of the dreams she has about him. Jesse came home and I said, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be dead. And he said, who told you that? He said, I am not dead. And, and someone said, we need help. Somebody had asked, we need help. We, can, can your son help us? And I said, no. And I grabbed a hold of him and I wouldn't let him go. Ugh. I would not let him go. What does it mean to you when you come here to this place to visit him? Oh, my goodness. When I, when I come to visit Jesse, I'm here on hollow grounds. That Jesse is buried here amongst so many other heroes who made sacrifices just like he did. That he's being honored. This is so well kept and it's just like a memorial. I mean, when you look around to all of the, this reminds me, their heroes, they sacrifice. They made a difference. When you're willing to put your life on the line for other people, it makes me happy that he's among people who did the same thing. Janice Chance told us she is filled with more pride than pain, but both sentiments inhabit the space between Arlington's symmetrical lines of headstones that are dedicated to those who, as Lincoln said, gave the last full measure to preserve, protect, and defend the American democracy. The unending rows of headstones between neatly mowed lawns overwhelm. To many, they represent the toll of war, the values of country, the spirit of self-sacrifice. To a smaller set, they're personal. There's been so much loss. When Keith Sherman walks through Arlington National Cemetery's Section 60, where many of the service members killed in Iraq and Afghanistan are buried, he sees friends, colleagues, familiar names. It feels like it's, it's, it's so final being here. And, you know, you can go on with your your life, but it's always there. And being here, feeling that that loss over again, it's it's hard. Sherman finished a 26-year military career spent mainly in naval special warfare, battle-scarred and broken. I lost so many friends to, you know, uh, combat and suicide that I thought maybe the only ones that could help save me would be the ones that lost somebody. So... That's when I went on a journey for 427 days, just living out of a tent, going to every single state in the country and uh, interviewing uh, families of those that had somebody killed in combat. His conversations with Gold Star families are now in the Library of Congress as part of the Veterans History Project. In those 400-plus days across the country, twice and back, Keith Sherman listened to each family's unique journey to recapture meaning and purpose after devastating loss. Along the way, he found his own path to healing. And just by pure happenstance, I'm staring at one of the families. I, I uh, interviewed his mom, Vicki Pierre, in North Carolina, um, and that's Noah's grave right there. Lance Corporal Noah M. Pierre was 25 when he died February 16, 2010, in Afghanistan's Helmand province while serving as a machine gunner. He had stepped on a pressure plate rigged to a roadside bomb. This is Noah here. I call it 15 minutes to glory, because this is 15 minutes before he was killed. His mother, Vicki, took me through their house, their small house in the, a mountain town of North Carolina, and they have you know, his uniforms on the wall and, and a picture from, like, basically it's like of him charging into this ambush uh, 15 minutes before he, he was killed. I was on the phone with my daughter and Nathan started screaming, they were here, the Marines were here. I uh, remember opening the door, 
I said, I heard that if you call, that Noah is hurt. But if you come to the door, Noah's been killed. Is that accurate? And they said, yes, ma'am. The thing about Section 60, these are kids, by and large. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes you hear people speak about, like, millennials and the millennial generation and problems with millennials are this or that. And I can say that every millennial that I've met and served with and most of who I, de- I uh, interviewed, the families, they were millennials. And they gave every last ounce of their life, their last full measure of devotion, the reverence of this place standing here is kind of takes your breath away. Every one of these people left their, their marks on their profession, their life, their friends, their loved ones. And now they're here in Arlington and their, their mark is here for the nation to see and honor. Everybody should come here. I definitely, I believe that. It's a place of reverence for, for everybody. There's so much history here. Um, however one believes, you know, whether they're, you know, don't believe in, in war, they're a pacifist, or, you know, or they're, they're, were raised with their family serving in the military, um, it's still a place to honor those who have gone before us. You're listening to Honor, Hope, and Healing from ABC News Radio. Once again, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, nearly 600,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. Is there a right way to grieve them? Psychologists say if you're still feeling a deep, overwhelming sense of loss more than a year or so after it happened, you could be suffering from something called prolonged grief disorder. ABC's Sherry Preston explains. It has been nearly a year since Sharonda Johnson lost her father to COVID, and she still vividly remembers the day he died. They would not let me in the room, so I had to stand outside the glass. It was hard because I couldn't touch him. I couldn't tell him how much I loved him or how much he meant to me or how good of a father he was to me. And it was difficult because it was the first aha moment I had about how many other people were suffering. The coronavirus has claimed more than 3 million lives around the world, nearly 600,000 of them here in the United States. Even if you don't know anyone directly who has died in the last year, you no doubt know others who have lost family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, acquaintances. The entire country, the entire world, is experiencing a sort of collective grief. And for those who feel it most acutely, the question is, when exactly does the pain subside? ABC News medical contributor Dr. Misha Reja says there is no timeline for when you're supposed to feel better. But if you are still feeling despondent, overwhelmingly sad or guilty, about a year after your loved one died, you could be suffering from something called prolonged grief disorder. Prolonged grief disorder is it's characterized by persistent grief. So persistent grief-like symptoms such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, that sustains past the period that bereavement is supposed to sustain. Usually it's symptoms longer than a year after a loved one has died. And the symptoms could be um, persistent depression, anxiety, but they can also have flashbacks, terrible dreams. Um, They can, uh, you know, walk into a room and think that their loved one is there when they're not. And it really impairs their ability to function. It impairs their ability to go back to work, to interact with family. It's just profound 
deep sadness. COVID-19 has disproportionately affected members of black and brown communities. The number of infections, hospitalizations and deaths are higher than in white communities. And sometimes members of those communities find it difficult to ask for help. It's shown in the literature that having a medical provider that looks like you is huge. So when an African-American person has grief and they weren't able to bereave in the way that they normally should, um, and they don't have an African-American provider, that actually shows to uh, inhibit their ability to process their grief. In Sharonda's case, dealing with the death of her father has been complicated because he contracted the coronavirus after returning to his church, where people were congregating closely and singing and not wearing masks. My dad became ill in July. It was when the church was hosting conferences. Prior to the start of that conference, I had seen on social media that somebody in the church, like they posted that they tested positive for COVID. So everyone was aware of that. That really, really scared me. Her father's illness started off as a cold. He got worse, was hospitalized. Doctors talked to him about going on a ventilator. And as he got sicker, eventually the family was called to his bedside. And while her mother was allowed to see him, Sharonda and her siblings were not. Another person who was, however, from her father's church, the pastor's wife. That part I still struggle with. The fact that my dad was dying that day, that I couldn't be there. My siblings couldn't be there. And this person, who's not a part of my family, could be there by law, is beyond me. Being able to let go of feelings like that over time is key when it comes to eventually moving on from prolonged grief. And if you don't move on, Dr. Asia says you could be dealing with a lot more than anxiety and depression. These psychological disorders and and this specific grief disorder that we're talking about actually translates into higher incidences of cancer, higher incidence of high blood pressure, higher incidences of diabetes. And it's not a, it's not a causative factor, meaning these, uh, uh, these grief disorders directly cause it through a pathophysiological mechanism. But if you have an impairment of your ability to take care of yourself, you stop taking your medication or the structural racism leads you to an inability to afford your medications, you're much more likely to have these um, comorbidities that then actually turn into a worsening of your COVID complications and, and increased risk of death. As for Sharonda, she is learning to live with her grief with the help of a therapist and because she herself has had psychological training during her time in the Air Force. I have a history of mental health treatment because I'm a combat veteran. But if I wasn't a combat veteran with that experience, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you these things are triggers for me. But she also knows that the reality is her father is gone forever, taken from her during the pandemic. And that, she thinks, will always hurt. I'm a combat vet. I've been in combat zones without my dad. So I've clearly I've existed and been okay without my dad. But to fathom that I have to keep living and my dad is no longer existing on Earth, I don't know how to do that. How do I even exist? So how do you exist? How do you move on after the death of a loved one? There are some doctors who refer to this prolonged sense of malaise following the death of a loved one as complicated grief. My name is Dr. Jonathan Fader, and I am a clinical and performance psychologist. Grief seems to be one of the things that we all have in common during the pandemic. How do you, what do you make of this idea of collective grief? Can it be therapeutic for us, maybe? 
you know, there's grief and then there's complicated grief. And so I think that we all are grieving to some extent, but nothing compares to the powerful emotions that are elicited when you lose someone that you truly love and is a big part of our life. As you know, when you lose someone who you really truly love, your brain is really unprepared for that. Um, it, I, I would liken it to, to a trauma, well, just in the same way we would be unprepared to be attacked or assaulted, right? Our, our brain doesn't have a space for that. It's impossible to even imagine. And those of us who've gone through the process of losing a loved one, a parent, or know that no matter what you, what stage of illness the person's at or how old they are, it doesn't matter. You have a place in your brain for that person. And once that person is no longer here in physical form, our, our brains struggle to make a reality that makes sense out of that. And when people have complicated grief, they're the people who are struggling more for whatever reason to make a story that makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned complicated grief and you said that. Tell us again the difference between complicated grief and just is there regular grief? There's no linear path through grief. I explain it as like a, a wave that you're surfing and then all of a sudden you look around and it's surfing you. Um, you know, it goes up and down and sideways and, and there's no, it isn't a straight line. That said, um, it should be trending down. Over time, there should be less and less intense feelings of sadness. Are you avoiding people, places and things? And, you know, are, do, you, do you find yourself spending time during the day ruminating, going over thoughts of what you should have done differently? And, you know, do you find yourself having emotions that you don't like that are hard to slow down or stop. Can you give us any tips on ways to get through it? The, the paradigm that I use is, is I try to help people look past the idea of getting over it. Um, I, I try to think of it as this is something that you're going to, it's a new identity that you have. You're, you're not really going to get over it. You know, I know I'm certainly never going to get over the loss of my mom. I, it'll never happen. What you do, Sherry, in, in complicated grief treatment is you help people to, number one, understand how to, to utilize their support system. Connecting with others and, and, and talking about what's happening is critical and developing relationships and pulling in people that can be helpful. And with complicated grief, it's essential um, most of the science is pointing to that there's a component of exposure therapy or um, helping people to, to face the things they're avoiding about the death. So what you actually do in that treatment is you spend five minutes retelling the experience of learning of your loved one's death. And it's done with the support of a therapist. Um, and, and what that does is it helps create a space for the story to kind of make sense. And it helps to, to confront fears we have about accepting in an emotional way that the person has died. We may accept it in a cognitive way, but we don't really accept it in an emotional way. And so being able to tell that story in that supported um, and thoughtful way helps people to, to get through. Dr. Fader, by the way, lost his mother last November. I lost my father in October of last year. So we had a lot to talk about. I think the thing that's been interesting about our conversation too is I think that we are both experiencing what we're talking about, not in the necessarily complicated part, but certainly in the grieving part, um, and finding creative ways to stay in touch with the emotion without letting the emotion disrupt our lives. Dr. Jonathan Fader is based in New York City. We've got the 
exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The Views Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here's your host, correspondent Aaron Katursky. As the nation marks Memorial Day in a pandemic year, our thoughts turn to battlefields far and near. We recall the service members who fought and died in war zones doing their patriotic duty. And given the times, no day of mourning seems quite right without also a moment to remember those who died during the pandemic of an unseen enemy and to pay tribute to those on the front lines of a different kind of battle. Edna Aceto always believed her biggest accomplishment was her family. She raised nine children, lived to see 14 grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren. She also worked full-time at Columbia University Presbyterian Medical Center, where she supervised the clerical staff in the emergency room for 40 years. Edna was an avid reader, committed to the crossword, and went to church every Sunday at her parish in Bergen County, New Jersey. This April, she would have turned 90. Last April, she celebrated her 89th birthday in the hospital, Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, stricken with COVID-19. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Nurses lifted a plastic sheet so she could hear them sing. Not being with her family was not easy. But Edna was with family. Her daughter-in-law, Michelle Aceto, is the chief nursing officer at Holy Name Medical Center. I have been in the thick of all this, right from the start. I've worked at Holy Name for 30 years, so the first 29 were smooth, and then last year it hit. And hit hard. In those early days of the pandemic, Michelle Aceto said things changed minute by minute. We went from that first one or two patients, we went to 18, to a full intensive care unit. Five days later, our engineering department filled us a 36-bed ICU, and that was filled the day it was open. 36 patients on ventilators, and it still wasn't enough. In one 72-hour period, Michelle recalled watching 20 COVID-19 patients die. One of them was her mother-in-law. The decision was made early on that she would not be put on a ventilator, that we would give her comfort and good quality of care at the end of her life and, and not put her through what could have been, you know, a, a, an uncomfortable last days. So it was really important to me to be there with her while she went through that tra- transition. And I will tell you, it was with comfort and peace that she passed. The passing of Edna Aceto touches all of us even though her daughter-in-law bore the brunt. Because of FaceTime and the staff coming in, singing happy birthday to her, her having a piece of strawberry shortcake, you know, just a few days before she died, you know, um, made me feel 
lucky to be here to hold her hand to you know help her through the, those last three, few days her mother-in-law wasn't the only relative michelle cared for that week her brother-in-law and her sister-in-law were also in her hospital with covid 19 right down the hall from edna her own daughter her primary caregiver was two doors away maybe 20 feet away and my sister-in-law was you know so sick with covid at that point she couldn't even get out of the bed to say goodbye to her mother. And I'm sure today that still hurts her to think, should I, could I, would I? But I'm, I'm here to tell you that she was so sick, there was no way for her to get out of that bed and walk those 20 feet to say goodbye. Did you sign up for this? This is <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Nobody knew what this was going to be, but when you sign up for healthcare, you know that people are going to be sick and some are going to go home and some aren't. What was different about this was the volume. People would walk in, I'm not feeling well, I have a fever. And then within hours, they were on a ventilator. It was surreal. It, it was surreal. A dozen doctors at her hospital and the chief executive became sick. And the virus killed Jesus Villaluz, her colleague of 27 years. When he was admitted, it was, it was hard. Everybody knew him. Jesus brought patients, supplies, and a reliable smile to every floor of the hospital. He was a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, and everybody truly loved him. Jesus Villaluz was 75 years old when he died of COVID-19. And I have to tell you, the day he died was a very, very sad day here at Holy Name. Michelle remembered the nurses and doctors pausing from their hectic work and lining the hallways while his sheet-draped body was wheeled through on a gurney. It was a moment, and only a moment, because we still had all those other patients to take care of. Everybody's shoulders went down. The whole hospital, you could feel it. It took that exasperation breath of, we can't believe we lost him. He was brought to the morgue by his director, and the falls were lined with staff. Everybody applauded for him, and it was probably the most difficult day to watch that for those brief moments. It's hard to imagine a death toll from COVID-19. We really have no way to visualize it. There are 3,000 names etched on the parapets of the 9-11 memorial, 50,000 names inscribed on the Vietnam memorial. Even Arlington National Cemetery, with its sea of white tombstones over 639 acres, represents 400,000 of the nation's veterans from the last 200 years. In the pandemic year, America's death toll from COVID-19 is nearly 600,000. We can't unsee what we've seen, um, which is just pure devastation, pain, suffering. Sandra Lindsay is the Director of Critical Care Nursing at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center. She is haunted by all of the death from coronavirus. At times, she told us she still sees the faces of patients in her care who did not make it. In one of my ICUs, there was just a group of African-American men that were in that, that pod and they passed away over different phases of their disease process. But just walking in and seeing all of them in that pod, it, it was just very sad for me. And that image has stayed with me. Health workers have witnessed an unfair amount of death during this pandemic. It's why Sandra is so strict about masks and other precautions and why she took the vaccine. You may remember Sandra's name. She was the first person in the United States to receive a shot. I've never been so fearful in my life. Um, in my 26 and a half years of nursing, this is the first time I've felt so fearful 
about going to work. How have you been able to process all of that suffering and all of the death that you've witnessed? You know, it, it's very difficult. It's um, some days are harder than some. I learned transcendental meditation, which has been helping a lot, but it's it's incredibly difficult. Have there been days when you just broke down? Yeah. Um, earlier on um, in the pandemic, some of my um, critical care attendants were on 60 Minutes. When they spoke and I saw images of my ICU, I just could not hold it together. And I remember um, texting my team. And, you know, the, the song that came to mind then was um, We Will Rise Again um, by Audra Day. And I just found the song on YouTube and sent it out to my team um, with the tears emoji and said, you know, we will rise again. And I truly do believe that. With heavy hearts, we try to summon that same spirit of hope that propels critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to Honor, Hope, and Healing, a special presentation from ABC News. As millions of masked-up Americans all across the country headed to vaccination centers this year, so did ABC's Daria Albinger. But when she arrived for her shot, she discovered the location itself was as significant and historic as the purpose for her visit. People making small talk, a DJ spinning tunes, even the photographer taking Instagram-worthy pictures. You might think it's a cocktail party in New York City, and you'd be wrong. This is a vaccination clinic, not too far from the Big Apple, at Clara Moss Medical Center in Belleville, New Jersey, which was named in honor of the most influential American nurse you may never have heard of. Clara Louise Moss is a historic nurse. She was a member of the military, and our hospital is named in her memory. She volunteered herself to be bitten by a mosquito three times so that a a cure could be found for yellow fever, which was the epidemic at that time. Stacey Newton, the medical center's director of marketing and public relations. Clara Moss is the first hospital in the U.S. to be named in honor of a nurse. She was born in nearby East Orange, New Jersey, and in 1898, at the age of 22, she became the head nurse at the hospital, which at the time was known as Newark German Hospital. At a young age, she became a like a head nurse in one of the Newark mm-hmm. hospitals and then decided she wanted to volunteer to go to Cuba with Walter Reed. And she contracted yellow fever. She had a very, very protracted course of it, ended up being uh, hospitalized for like almost a year got over it, went back, because she went to the Philippines after that. Mm -hmm. Then she came back. She got it again. The third time around, she got it, and this time she didn't recover. Dr. Frank Mazzarella is chief continuum of care officer and the medical center's unofficial historian. He says her life, and even more importantly, her death just three years later changed medicine forever. After her death, that ended human experimentation as we, we were aware of human experimentation. On a tour of the museum at the medical center dedicated to Moss's life, 
Dr. Mazzarella told me the way that they are approaching the battle against COVID-19 is in many ways, like the way healthcare professionals in Moss's time battled yellow fever because it was also a novel virus. The patients were so sick and they were suffering so much. And we were doing almost everything we could for them, but we didn't know a lot of things in those days. In the beginning, they were given steroids. They were giving uh, antibiotics. They were given hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Now they're using remdesivir. We're doing monoclonal antibodies. We're doing ivermectin. So there's, there's a lot of different things that are happening, but you know, we, we all had to learn it. Dr. Mazzarella says the medical center knew from the get-go that they were going to approach this process, not with fear, but with joy. And he says the people who came to the clinic to get vaccinated, well, they responded that way too. You know what? what's really nice is all the grandparents that come in and they're saying, mm-hmm. um, now, I can, now I can go see my grandchildren mm-hmm. again. And when we give them the second shot, I always say to them, listen, in two weeks, you're immune. And that's why you might find Dr. Maz, as he likes to be called, on many days in one of the medical center's vaccination bays. That's why I volunteered to be a vaccinator, because I just feel so good doing this. I feel like it's, you know, it's my way of giving back. And I'd much rather give back that way than have to be taking care of a sick person yeah. at the bedside. So feeling a little less nervous about getting the jab and the music and the conversation and, okay, a couple cookies that they gave me. I did my part and I rolled up my sleeve for Nurse Madonna, who did her best to talk me off the ledge. They, they say they're afraid of the, 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 the needle. And then when they actually give the shot, it's like, oh, like they didn't even expect anything. All right. It's like they felt nothing. So it's been interesting. And my next question is, are you going to hurt me? I'm not going to hurt you. I'll try my best not to. All right. And three weeks later, I was back for my second dose. Your sticker, you are a big shot times two. Whoa. Yay. And knowing that I did this in memory of a true American hero made me feel even better about it. Aaron? We turn now to another vaccination site, this one shepherded by the most versatile members of the military, the National Guard. Here's ABC's Brian Clark. In the parking lot of this shopping mall in northern New Jersey, there are flags flying for a furniture store. This store is adjacent to a Sears that closed down a couple of years ago. But in front of the Sears are two large white tents, and those tents serve as the entrance to a vaccination mega site that on this May afternoon is approaching 300,000 doses administered in just over four months. It's run by the New Jersey National Guard. My name is Captain James Ruane. I'm the commander of Sea Troop first of the 102nd Cavalry Regiment. Normally, that's a reconnaissance troop focused on gathering information about an enemy. So how did they wind up here? When the vaccine distribution mission for the state came out, uh, a number of sites were looked at across the state by the Department of Health, uh, Department of Emergency Management. When this site was selected, our cavalry squadron is mostly located in the northern part of the state. So about mid-December, I got a phone call saying that my troop was being activated and we would handle the mission here and I would be the officer in charge of the National Guard members on site. Those members, a total of 70, carry out a wide range of tasks. It starts at the front door where Sergeant Ryan Vance works to get people set for their shot. Myself and about uh, 12 other soldiers are assigned to a group we call pre-screening. So we handle everything from checking people in at the front doors, um, guiding them into the registration queue. We ask them pre-screening questions to make sure they're okay and that they're ready to go get the vaccine. From there, it's on to this giant room. It was the first floor of a massive Sears. Staff Sergeant Cindy Brito and her group help make sure people get to where they need to be. My section's role is to um, place them um, online, 
you know, maintaining the social distance and um, sending them to the appropriate stations to get vaccinated. Civilian health care providers administer the shot at one of more than 20 vaccination stations. After their shot, it's on to the observation area under the eye of Staff Sergeant Joseph Barbado. He's the non-commissioned officer in charge of that part of the room. After you get vaccinated, you either have 15 or 30 minutes of observation. Um, if it was your first dose, you're, we're going to schedule you for your second. It's a shot of hope for the people getting this vaccine, but for these soldiers, the numbers quickly blur. When the site first opened, it was a very slow opening, rolling opening. We would vaccinate, you know, less than 100 a day and then add on each week. Once we hit 2,400, we realized we still had a high demand for the vaccine, so the state issued new guidance where sites would work up to 4,000 a day. And over the course of another month, and we worked up to that 4,000 at our peak. We were doing about 4,300 vaccines a day. Things have quieted down here. These mega sites were intended to surge vaccines into areas before people were able to get them at places like their own doctor's office or a pharmacy. It's kind of funny sometimes that, that people walk up and they see soldiers and they're, they're a little bit nervous. Or maybe, you know, maybe some of it is that they're, they're nervous because they don't like needles, which would be uh, totally understandable. Um, but yeah, sometimes people come up and they're they're just a little nervous. And, uh, you know, you get to kind of have these fun little moments with people. They'll walk up and just say, hey, what time's your appointment? What's your last name? What's your favorite color? And it just kind of catches them off guard. You know, you make them laugh a little. And it really brightens your day to be able to, to have a... Uh, a positive interaction with the general public and just kind of make somebody smile. Jobs are something that most people serving in the National Guard have outside of their roles here, and that requires a balance. Sergeant Vance has had a very busy stint, a little over three years in the National Guard. He's already spent most of 2019 on a deployment in Africa. He returned to the U.S. just in time for the COVID-19 pandemic to erupt. It has been crazy. I have been in the Guard for just over three years. I have been activated for more than half of that time. So it's been a, uh, an enormous time commitment, but it's also been a lot of fun. Uh, I have learned an incredible amount about myself, about my profession, uh, about the world around me. I've met some of the most incredible people, and it's, it's really been a growing experience. Staff Sergeant Brito says there is the hope of brighter days ahead. Normal. <laughs> That's the goal. You know, one step at a time, for sure. Just getting a little normalcy would be would be lovely. This site will close down, but its impact on New Jersey is going to be felt for some time in ways that almost seem hard to believe. You look back and think, you know, how do we get to this point? And it's, like I said, it's just the teamwork. It's just the soldiers that I have working, our partners, you know, with the hospital system in the county, everyone coming together. It, it seems crazy to get to that point, but once you see the people that you're working with, it, it's very simple how we got here. Brian Clark, ABC News, Rockaway, New Jersey. Starting out, vaccination efforts centered on mass vaccination sites, those sprawling stadium or convention centers transformed into huge in-person and drive through clinics. The next phase is reaching people where they live and work and shop and worship. Health workers taking their expertise and their shots on the road to help close the vaccination gap. ABC's Michelle Franzen with more on that. Aaron. That race to vaccinate now shifting from the mass scale to focusing on micro-targeting, harder to reach communities in rural areas, and the reluctant. We've all heard about herd immunity since the start of this pandemic, but what does it really mean? So when we think about herd immunity, our goal is to go to a place that their adoption rate is low. 
so that we can a we can maybe do a first pass of uh, people that if there's low interest, but then they might be able to go to others and say, I had a good experience. It was easy. Um, I had minimal side effects or I had no side effects. Ultimately, this is about population health, no matter what that population is, whether it's a geographical population or uh, part of the Bi- a BIPOC community. Ashley Jude is the coordinator for the mobile vaccine strike team for Centricare based in Minnesota. Ultimately, we roll up in our uh, our personal vehicles right now because of COVID. We don't carpool. She and a team of nurses and health care workers now fanning out, traveling around the state, setting up those pop-up clinics to get shots in the arms and also offer a dose of hope and trust if people are on the fence whether to get vaccinated. So that we can uh, be the gap filler, if you will. They've been rolling up to businesses, community colleges, even churches. And then we, we gauge interest in our strategy from there. She says it's important to reach those who may be hesitant, trying to figure out the information and also make an emotional decision. A couple of weeks ago, we went to a site in rural uh, Minnesota and we had 50 people vaccinated at a church. And from that, now uh, other pop-up clinics have happened in that community. The mobile COVID team also trying to reach all age groups, including college students. Rolanda Garcia is president of North Hennepin Community College just outside of Minneapolis. North Hennepin Community College is one of the most diverse community colleges in the Minnesota state system. About 50 percent of our students are students of color. It's important that we get to that 70 percent herd immunity threshold. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to reach deep into our community um, to assist folks who may not have been comfortable initially uh, to get the vaccine. So we have partnered with the strike force to try and get into our community and be convenient for our students, our employees and their families. One of those nurses on CentraCare's mobile team, Jessica Lund, helping most recently with the community college clinic. We've had several people come in that had a few questions before they were ready to receive the vaccine, and we just try to give them um, the most correct and up-to-date knowledge that we know and then help them make the decision if the vaccine is right for them or not. Lund helping others, but also says she's getting something in return. It's just been really amazing just being in their environment and hopefully making them more comfortable. The Kaiser Family Foundation asked Americans nationwide if they plan to get a COVID-19 vaccine shot. One in five rural residents said they definitely would not. Jude says those reasons vary. You know, some people just don't know there's so much information out there. You know, their family maybe has a belief about this or their other family has a a different belief. Jude says there's a type of ownership that comes with making this type of a decision for your health and for your community. You know, this is a it's a discussion about them, their health, their body, their concerns. A mobile strike team force breaking through the barriers. Ultimately, people want freedom. Our goal as Centric Care is that we want people to be healthy. And if if freedom comes with people being healthy, I mean, it's a win-win for us. And building up trust and confidence in the vaccine, one shot and one conversation at a time. Michelle Franz in ABC News. Once again, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. It's hard to imagine how frontline healthcare workers manage to balance it all, the work of caring for COVID-19 patients with their own day-to-day lives. Many protected their families by making separate homes inside their own houses. Others weren't certain they'd survive the year. ABC's Andy Field from Bethesda, Maryland now. 
Medical professionals learn to tune this out. But this sound is still jarring. That last FaceTime call to a dying COVID patient. Emergency nurse Virginia Shad, wearing full protective gear, held that phone up to critical COVID patients so family and friends could say goodbye. It sounds crazy, it's horrible that it's happening, but it felt like I was doing the only thing that I could do. I'm gonna make sure that this phone call happens. Virginia was often the last person COVID patients saw before dying, her own face wrapped inside a sealed protective mask. And I remember being in all my garb, in a room, sweating, trying to turn a patient to, I need to give them Tylenol. And I just remember like breaking down in the room and being like, how are we going to get through this? Nurse Cara Baldini says she handled too many of those end of life calls. The hardest thing was having their families on FaceTime and having to have them say goodbye. That broke me. Most COVID patients did not arrive this way. Virginia Shad says many just walked in and seemed to have the flu. That's when I knew how scary COVID was because they came in talking and were on a ventilator in two hours and they were in the ICU for three weeks and then I found out that they had passed away. Nurse Yuana Sanborn was one of the ER team leaders, making sure staff protected themselves even as they tried to save patients. It was pretty scary. So a lot of these elderly went pretty quick and the first few weeks, they didn't even make it out of the ER. And then there was the ride home and how to protect their own families. Many of us didn't sleep in our homes. I was grateful that I had a basement that I could go to and that's, it was my bunker and that's where I stayed for many months. Cara Baldini says she felt helpless at work and home. I'd have to change before I got in the door and go right in the shower, and I was still scared that I was going to spread it to my husband. My younger sister has Down syndrome. I was terrified about bringing any of it to my family, so we didn't see them for a long time. Where did mommy sleep? Downstairs inside there. Yuana tried explaining to her four-year-old daughter Mia why mom could not hug or touch her. And why did mommy sleep down there? You can't be next to me because coronavirus. Do you know how to fight the virus? Uh, you wash your hands. And you wear a mask. Watching so many ventilator patients never recover created a lot of post-traumatic stress. There would be some nights where I would just come home and I would cry and, and I was like, I just, I need a moment. Dr. Eugene Lipoff runs a nonprofit called ErasePTSDNow.org. They help medical professionals cope with COVID stress. Studies say it's affected nearly one in every four hospital workers. I think it's a huge problem, and I think it's going to become more so because we have gone through part of the viral pandemic, but there is a mental pandemic coming right after that. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. For Ioana, Kara, and Virginia, much of that nightmare ended when the first vaccine shipment arrived. I mean, I did not think this was going to happen for years. I saw no end in sight for this. And I was one of the first to start in the vaccination clinic, helping out giving the vaccine. I mean, I would come home with tears of joy every day. Everybody was so grateful and so excited, and they wanted a picture of their vaccine. And such an amazing experience, going from such a low to now such a high. It's about the greater good. It's about protecting the people who have cancer and are immune compromised and cannot get vaccinated. And even with COVID numbers dropping, many frontline nurses aren't sure it's over when they see the surge in other countries. We want to see our family. We want to socialize. We just have to hang in a little bit longer. Do you let your guard down? 
I don't know. The folks in this emergency room won't. In Bethesda, Maryland, I'm Andy Field, ABC News. By now, we've all heard the expression, paying it forward. Receiving a gift or an act of kindness and passing it along to someone else in hopes they do the same. Between last Memorial Day and this one, we've seen countless examples of people paying it forward and finding their own rewards as a result. ABC's Jim Ryan introduces us to a pair of people, one a restaurateur, the other a nurse, whose selfless acts have not gone unnoticed. In March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic was raging across the globe, costing people their lives, their health, and their jobs. For vulnerable elderly people in the nation's nursing homes and assisted living centers, isolation was the price of survival against a disease that had killed thousands. It's been a very challenging time. I think we had to stay at home or we lost connection, you know. Christy Tier is a physical therapy assistant at Carriage House Manor in Sulphur Springs, Texas. Most of our connection was virtually. We had to talk on the phone. We had to Skype. So I think I just realized how important connection with people really is. Despite the best attempts at staving off coronavirus, some of the people she cared for succumbed to COVID-19. Despite that heartache, she's felt emotional growth through the crisis. I love what I do. You know, my patients are my family, I say. And I think that, you know, during this time, we were their only hug that they may have got or the smile that they saw. It was a difficult time, but I think right now, looking back, I guess I'm thankful that I was there for them and I got to be there and just be a positive, you know, in their life at that time. Coronavirus didn't differentiate between big cities and tiny villages. Even a little town like Bertram in the Texas Hill Country felt the chills and fever of COVID. As unemployment grew in the town of about 1,545 miles northwest of Austin, a local restaurant owner saw his chance to help. And I spoke to my wife. I said, we're doing pretty good. I have some, you know, extra money. I want to help out people, you know. Meet Al Rejimotovic, the owner of Fratelli's Pizza and Mambo Italian Restaurant in Bertram. We have people to make pizza instead of just sitting there or whatever, you know. Let's just help people, you know. My wife said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. I said, God will provide for us again. Hold on to that thought. God will provide for us again. And so Al, who moved from Montenegro on the Adriatic Sea five years ago with his wife and seven children, began spreading the word around Bertram. If you're hungry, we have food for you. I told him that to be a very uh, secret. I don't want people to expose themselves. All they have to do is just uh, say their name, the name we use for them to pick up the order, and they will just tell us. In our family, we have seven people, six people, four people, and we will do a couple pizzas, we will do a few lasagnas, they can get by that day, and they can do that over and over. It was just the right thing to do. But if Al Rejimonovich was the spark, others in Bertram were the kindling. As COVID-19 robbed people of their lives and their livelihoods, the town was taking care of itself. They heard about it, and people were just leaving envelopes. They were just leaving a cash, checks. They were helping that cause tremendously. So it was not just me, to be honest, it was a more community that did it than myself. 100%. And so it went through the heart of the pandemic. Al took orders from anonymous neighbors who needed help. He provided them free food, and then other anonymous neighbors who had the means gave donations to Al. The healthy parts of Bertram took care of the parts that were hurting, helping the entire body to heal. A year after Al started giving away pizzas and lasagna, on March 22, 2021, everything in Bertram changed. Late on that Monday evening, a severe thunderstorm crashed down on the community, thrashing it with extreme straight-line winds. 
Fire Chief Bobby Huffstetler was one of the first to survey the damage in downtown Bertram. Maybe McGill building is heavily damaged. Boutique, a lot of damage to the boutique. The A.B. McGill building was a local landmark, one that every native of Bertram knew. You know, built in 1905, you know, all of us have been in it throughout our lives, and it's just so sad to see. But the McGill building wasn't the only one that felt the wrath of the storm. My neighbor called me, actually, says, Al, go to your place. I went to the store and I just saw the devastation, you know. It was a pretty tough scene to see it. One of Al Rejimotovic's two restaurants also was heavily damaged. This is a part of uh, my roof and I see some chairs that are like 200 yards down. The things are flying everywhere. Thank God uh, there was no lives uh, threatened. No, nobody's in a serious condition or anything. It's all just the materialistic things, all the buildings and stuff. We're all going to fix and rebuild that, that's for sure. He didn't realize it at the time, but Al had paid it forward a year earlier during the pandemic. He didn't even have to ask for help. The great thing is it's a small community and already I received 100, 150 phone calls for people to try to help and get us together and um, moving forward, whatever happens. Now he's paying it forward again, offering free food to neighbors whose buildings were damaged in the March storm. I get the goosebumps, I cannot explain you that. It's not the words that can explain that. But coming to live in Bertram and that small community is just a blessing. I mean, everybody's one. It's unbelievable. Honor, hope, and healing in the Texas Hill Country town of Bertram. Jim Ryan, ABC News. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here's your host, correspondent Aaron Katursky. For families of fallen service members, every day is Memorial Day. And the same is now true for hundreds of thousands of American families who are coping with loss and trying to heal the wounds of the pandemic year. One of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who lost a battle to COVID-19 over the past year was Joe Trejo, Joe and his wife had a beautiful love story, one that brought a mariachi band to Joe as he laid in the ICU suffering from the virus in order to play the couple's song. ABC's Alex Stone with this story from Fullerton, California. Joe and Patty Trejo loved mariachi music. They would seek out concerts around Southern California to sit and listen together. Que bonito. And like so many couples, they had their song, La Mano de Dios, The Hand of God. Solamente la mano de Dios podrá separarnos. 
Joe and Patty were inseparable for 38 years. Well, we met 15 and 16. So we met, I don't, it's called Billy Barty's. It used to be, it was a roller rink. Teenage sweethearts, that is, once Patty warmed up to Joe. It was my ex-boyfriend's brother introduced us. And in order for me not to be stuck with the other guy, I told Joe, hey, can we pretend we're dating? He's like, oh yeah, okay. So he held my hand the entire night and I keep thinking, why are you holding my hand? We're done. And at the end of the night, he wanted my phone number. I said, no, it's okay. But Patty liked bad boys. Joe was a good guy. He found her number, though, and called, and the rest was history. The two have three boys together, and music has always been a part of their lives. Mariachi music is so beautiful. My husband, would he'd love for us just to go, go to San Diego and listen to mariachi. We would go to weddings and just listen to it, or just we'll go concerts and listen to it. Si tu ya no me quieres. For 35 years, Joe worked for the local school district in Fullerton, most recently as a locksmith. Patty, a teacher's aide working with special needs children. One of the couple's three boys has special needs. He would say, you're the strongest woman I, I know. And I would tell him, I would tell him, I, I'm only strong because of you. You're the only reason. I am this way. And he said, no, no, I know it's more than that. It was January when the family got sick. Patty and her sons got it. Then Joe. What happens was my son works at McDonald's. He got it from a customer. And brought it home to you. And he brought it home. Yeah, and, and I love my sons. And it's because we're, you know, we are frontline workers. I go, I work for the district. Dad worked for the district. You know, we knew it was going to come. We just didn't know how. It went through the family quickly. Patty and her youngest son became sick first. Then her other son, who has autism, got severely ill. Joe then had trouble breathing. On January 15th, she dropped Joe off at the hospital. This baby, if you only knew how much pain. I'm in so much pain. I just don't want to tell you. I go, why don't you tell me this? Because I don't want you to worry. I'm like, I need to worry. He goes, no, 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 you don't because you have enough to worry about. As if it couldn't get worse, Patty's father then died of COVID. Joe's condition was getting worse. On February 5th, he was put on a ventilator. I go, babe, you need to calm down. Please, please do it for us. I go, you need to be home by Valentine's Day. Please, I beg of you. I go, breathe with me. So I started breathing with him and soothing him. And then it broke my heart when they did put him on the bed on the face because he was trying. He would try not to talk to me when he would call me. Babe, I can't talk a lot because it hurts to breathe. Joe was only 53 years old as he laid in that ICU bed. ICU Dr. Michael Katz at Providence St. Jude Medical Center. We could see that his disease was severe, but he was young. And um, some of those patients made it through. Um, many of them did not, you know, despite great effort. You know, I mean, he, he had some pre-existing medical problems, but not such to the point that you would assume that he, you know, likely wasn't going to make it. I mean, he was squarely in the category of very sick, but we were going to give him a full aggressive effort, do everything that we could to try to get him through this. On that ventilator and severely ill, Patty decided she and Joe had to celebrate Valentine's Day. It was their day, so in love. And working with St. Jude Medical Center, they decided the mariachi band could play their song, The Hand of God. Not in his hospital room, but outside in the parking lot, and they would let him hear it via FaceTime. 
This is the sound from that moment recorded in his hospital room, the sound of ventilation and hospital equipment drowning out the music. Patty in full protective gear rubbing Joe's chest. He was sedated. She sobbed, holding his fist near her heart as a band played outside. I did the rosary with him. I remember holding the rosary in between our hands. He actually, I, they played La Mano de Dios and I saw his eyes flutter and his head move. He even coughed. And I thought, oh my gosh, he can hear it. Because even the nurse goes, oh my gosh, he can hear it. Look at him moving. She goes, he's under strong sedation. I can't believe he can hear this. So I knew it. I knew it. And that's one thing that the nurses have said. He's, he's, we never thought he could hear, but she's, he knows when you're here. He knows when you're here. And I thought, that's how strong our love was. It's like we read each other's minds all the time. We always knew. Always knew. Always saw him as my soulmate and he saw me. Dr. Katz. You know, for patients even when they're severely ill, this is certainly my strong belief, um, just based on experience and observation over time is, um, you know, even when patients are too sedated to be able to wake up and communicate, um, they often can still hear. You know, we know that because later on a lot of times they'll tell us, you know, that they remember hearing a conversation or something that, you know, happened at the bedside. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, for, for them to be able to recognize a family member's voice, hear some, you know, loving words of support, um, you know, that, that can be really important. Do you believe in, in his case that if music was playing in his room that, that he could have very well heard it? I believe so, yes. Providence St. Jude is a large hospital, but word made it all around. That gesture that Patty had done for her husband around Valentine's Day. Joe's condition worsened. On March 1st, at the age of 53, Joe Trejo died of COVID-19. I know he heard everything I said. I know he did. Because, I mean, I would feel it. Even the day he passed, I felt like he was there with me, you know, holding me. Because even at the services, when they put the, um, the paw cloth on him over his coffin, I could swear he was holding me. I, I just closed my eyes. I could see us walking down the aisle together, and I could feel him. It was just so unreal. Patty is now a widow, struggling to move forward alone, raising their three boys. I go to bed thinking, I can, I'm wishing I can, I can dream of him thinking, okay, I'm wishing that I don't wake up so I can be with him because that's how much I miss him. And then I wake up thinking it's a nightmare. He's not there. I just, and it's hard to believe that he's gone. And she has a message for those who aren't careful with COVID. I blame the non-believers. I blame the people that would not wear masks because they're the ones, they're the reason why my husband died. I blame them because they refuse to wear a mask. We even had friends that wouldn't believe it. And they'll be like, what? How can you? And the minute that my husband got in the hospital, they started to believe. It was a beautiful love story bound by music. Joe Trejo battled for nearly two months, his wife at his side every step of the way. In Fullerton, California, I'm Alex Stone, ABC News. We're telling stories about honor, hope, and healing this Memorial Day.
E.J. Becker in Kansas City tells us those words describe the life and service of one very remarkable Marine. A Marine who knows, as does his son, that he is lucky and blessed to be alive. One night we were under a heavy shelling on Guadalcanal. He and his foxhole buddy got up after a night of naval shelling. My buddy and I got out of our foxhole. About eight feet in front of their foxhole was a... Was a... 14-inch naval shell that didn't explode. Dud. Had that thing not been a dud. You wouldn't have been here. We wouldn't be having this conversation today. That was 1942. Max DeWeese was 21. And I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come to this celebration. I don't think we'll do this again. This was March 20th, this year. The day Max turned 100 years old, and it's been quite the century. We used to ride partway to school on the back of the ice wagon, horse-drawn. The son of a preacher, Max grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. We didn't have bad weather days in those days. We had a period of 20 days that it didn't get above 20 below zero. And we went to school every school day. Moved south. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. I remember mother and my sister and I going to the parade for Charles Lindbergh when he returned from his solo flight to Paris. And, of course, remembers how the world changed one day when he was 20 in junior college. I didn't graduate with my class. I couldn't pass chemistry. Bill Eisendorf, the professor, had given me the test, I think, three times, and I never couldn't pass the damn thing. And I was in Oklahoma City when Pearl Harbor was attacked. I ran into my professor. He asked me what I was going to do, and I said, well, I really don't know. He said, well... Why don't you join the Marine Corps? January 15th, signed up that morning. I was aboard a train that night to San Diego boot camp. I went aboard ship uh, Mother's Day 1942 and lived aboard that sucker and from then until August 7th when we landed at the canal. Max was with the first company to land on Japanese soil. Guadalcanal, Tinian, Saipan, Tarawa, three years in the Pacific. I weighed about 165 pounds when we landed. When we left the island, I weighed 135 pounds. I'd had everything but malaria. There were probably more men, well, I know there were more men evacuated for malaria than there were for battle wounds. These were some of the fiercest battles of the Pacific. Max saw them firsthand and survived them. I've got two Purple Hearts. I'm not going to talk about them. It didn't take you long to realize it's either them or me, and it's not going to be me if I can help it. And a memory that is both vivid and haunting. There's stuff you won't tell anyone. Don DeWeese is Max's son. The horrors he saw, the friends he lost, they talk about survivor's guilt. He knows he was blessed to survive. So many did not. When I came back to the States after 33 months, I ran into Bill Azendorf. His chemistry professor from before the war. He said, Max, if you want to, you can go to the junior college office and pick up your diploma. You now have passed chemistry. I passed the hard way. After Max's four-year hitch, he went into the reserves and was among the first troops called back up. Having survived his stint in World War II as a flamethrower, one of the deadliest jobs he could have had, he became a weapons instructor during Korea, stayed stateside, and met Sue. I went to choir practice, and she was there with her sister, and asked her if she wanted to go have a Coke. Her sister said, no, 
you don't need to walk home with me. I can get there all right. You go with him. And so we went to the corner drugstore, Falls Graf at 18th and Central, and had a Coke. When did you know? I don't know that I ever knew until Sue said, uh, what are you doing November the 8th? And I said, I don't know why. And she says, I've already got the church reserved for a wedding. Max and Sue had a daughter, Becky, and a son, Don. They were married 69 years, as Max's career in accounting took him from the John Deere Plow Company to the Kansas City Athletics Baseball Club and beyond, climbing the ladder all the way. He retired over 30 years ago and hasn't slowed down since. I still drive, take meals on wheels to 9 to 12 people. You're 100 years old and you take meals on wheels to people. Yeah, and they're all younger than me. There's one on my nose in the 90s, has to be, because she was a Marine in uh, World War II. So he serves like as the chaplain in the Marine Corps League. Frank Ice is a retired Marine and major in the Lenexa, Kansas Police Department. He's active in the Salvation Army, the Commemorative Air Force, his church. He plays golf on Friday, and he's part of the poker and bridge club. You don't see many people that are still giving back so much to their community at that age. He never slows down. Max is also very active in a group called FISH. Friends in Service of Heroes, who has given away to service or service families over 35 service dogs. I don't know how many electric wheelchairs. I don't know how many houses we've gone into and done some remodeling so a wheelchair could maneuver. Vehicles that people have donated that we've had remodeled so that a person in a wheelchair could get in and out and be transported. 75 years after he left the battlefields of the Pacific, Max continues to serve both fellow servicemen and women and others. And when Max needs help, like he did a year ago, just after his 99th birthday, they rally around him too. All of a sudden I lost my appetite. Food didn't taste good and I talked to the manager and she took my oxygen. It was 84. Okay. I called my doctor. He called that evening and said, you tested positive. I went to the hospital the next day. Max had made it 99 years, survived some of the fiercest battles of World War II, including hand-to-hand combat. Was he worried about COVID-19? Not particularly. I knew that the mortality rate was greater among senior citizens, but, you know, I figured that I've lived a full life. If this is the time, this is the time. Why worry about it? And nobody that knows him was surprised a few weeks later when Max, having stared down COVID-19, walked out of the hospital to return to independent living, where he lives today. Actually, Max may have been a little surprised by what awaited him outside the hospital that morning. There was a fire truck out there with the big American flag. There were Marines there. Uh, We sang the Marine Corps hymn. And a lot of people from the church and from Fish were there. It was a complete surprise to me. One thing Max is looking forward to in a post-COVID world is getting back into schools, talking to young people, and telling them why he thinks the service and sacrifice of the greatest generation is so very important still today. Two and probably three generations of young people have no idea, no conception of the sacrifices that have been made for them to abuse the liberties that they have 
Ask him what he's proudest of, and Max will say he's almost 70 years married to Sue. In his life of honor, hope, and healing, Max DeWeese has been many things to many people. Husband, father, friend, man of deep faith, volunteer, golfer, and mentor. And of course, singer, especially when it comes to his favorite song. We are proud to bear the title of United States Marine. You're listening to Honor, Hope, and Healing from ABC News Radio. Once again, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. Not all military personnel enlist for the same reason. We have a portrait now of someone whose struggle with his own identity led him to service, and that service during wartime brought its own challenges. ABC's John Capitaneus with the story of a veteran who learned that art could help him heal. You know, growing up as a scared gay black kid in the South, I would never be the hero. Why can't the gay black boy be a hero? Why? For so many veterans, The wounds of war carry over far beyond the battlefield. There were times I walked down the streets in New York City, screaming and crying to the top of my lungs, snot running down my nose, tears running down my eyes, and nobody would even ask me, am I okay? My name is Omar Columbus. I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh, I served with deployments for Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. I served on active duty for 12 years. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in a small coastal town in eastern North Carolina called Washington, North Carolina. And when I was born in 1976, look at my little notebook. Um, the population was approximately 8,489 people back in 1976, and as of the most recent census, it was about it's about 9,400 and some people approximately. That seems like the type of place where everybody knows each other. Yes. On Sundays, nine out of ten households were at church on Sunday morning when I grew up. So it's one of those very conservative religious towns. Kind of separate yet unequal. When you drive into my town, you have coming in, you have the white folks graveyard on one side of the road and the black folks graveyard on the other side of the road. We still don't get buried together. When did you know you wanted to serve in the military? I didn't. I just, I had no interest in being in the military at first because I just wasn't, I never thought I was cut out for it. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't strong. I wasn't super gung-ho patriotic or anything. I looked at it as I'm the oldest of three, raised by a single mother. So it's like uh, I had to do something. So that was the reason I ended up enlisting was because I had to do something. What is the experience for you having been in a combat zone? Feeling like, honestly, that America forgets about you. Or I'll never forget um, when President Bush, he said, we're about to go and strike Iraq. And I'll never forget that was the breaking news. And also the very next news segment was, who's gonna win American Idol, Fantasia or Diana? And I'm here risking my life and yet most Americans are more interested in American Idol than what we're over here doing. And that was challenging. Omar saw deployments to Iraq 
and Afghanistan. But it was coming home that became the major challenge. How are you at this time coping with all of these various, beyond stresses, all these various traumas and, and, and pains and hurts on yourself, on your identity as a person? It's a journey. It's all been a journey. It's all been a journey of just self-discovery, self-acceptance. I mean, I left North Carolina. Main reason I joined the military because I was gay. I'm gay and I was terrified. I mean, I spent my entire life in the closet, then joined the military and served for 12 years under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, you know, and going to war and being in a country where, like, so all of these experiences compounding on hiding who I was, trying to be everything that the Air Force wanted me to be. It wasn't easy, and I was ashamed a lot, ashamed of who I was. If you haven't noticed by listening to Omar speak, he's a creative person. Before long, he turned to art to find his voice. What, what stories did you feel like you could tell through your performing, through your photography that you couldn't tell before? Well, now, um, like through my poetry, it allows me to say, I'm scared. It allows me to say, I have nightmares. It allows me to say, I'm gay. It allows me to say, this happened to me. So through art, I found other outlets that allow me to calm, cope, and soothe myself that weren't destructive. Because I'll tell you, I open up my medicine cabinet every day and headaches, sweaty palms, nightmares, all of these things are side effects of medication. Uh, the side effects that come with art, zero. Before we ended our conversation, Omar wanted to share a poem with me, with all of you. It's quite long, so we can't play it all, but we think the moments you'll hear will resonate. And this is my poem. I, it's entitled, Camouflaged Heart. War makes humans human. Conflict is universal. Battles rage as mankind ages, yet never learns from past mistakes or stories from those who live to tell of what war remains, a living hell. Still, dreams of war knock at my door. I try not to let them in. Comrades did not make it back alive. <sighs> Hyperventilating, my nightmares evolve into daymares. And yes, I'm still in pain. You just can't see it. Only a camouflaged heart remains. Tell us what you're feeling, sharing something so vulnerable, so personal. Honestly, it's, it's nervous and nervous about sharing my story, but still at the same time confident that it needs to be heard. It's worthy of being heard. If I can just help one other person, one other veteran, hold on and be inspired, try art, uh, find ways of expression. I win. You know, that I didn't give up, that I didn't end my life. 
I win. That I wake up every morning and believe in myself first before I walk out into a world that I feel that doesn't believe in me as a black man, as a gay man, as a veteran. I win. I win. When men and women of the U.S. military return home from combat, they often bring lasting wounds. Again, ABC's John Capitaneus with a story of a veteran who's found healing through artistic expression. Women make up just about 17% of the United States military. Since 2001, they've been on the front lines of the global war on terror. And with it, they face many of the consequences of combat. PTSD is your human reaction to extraordinary circumstances. Jenny Pakanowski wears a number of hats. She's a veteran, a mom, a martial artist, a writer. After college, Jenny enlisted in the Army, serving as a medic. Before long, she was on the front lines of combat in Iraq. One of the first things I did in Iraq that I think added significantly to the severity of my post-traumatic stress disorder was we went into a town with our ambulance and we did a med cap with the kids. So we did physicals and we gave them cough drops and like little medicines and stuff. One of my very first interactions in Iraq were with the children. So then now I'm on convoys and I'm, I'm racing in between these bases through these towns, scanning for children or bombs. And then when I came back, those two things meshed together and children to me were bombs. So there's so much gray that it's like, you can't even, it's a fog of gray. You can't see anything. What is that like being in that place for so many months? Turning it on is surprisingly easy, especially after the training we received. Turning it off is is something I struggle with daily. And that's why uh, some veterans, including myself, can seem distracted or disconnected or all those things because decisions become debilitating. I've done like 20 years of therapy on my brain, but my body still remembers. Finding inner peace became a constant struggle, but Jenny is not one to ever give up. Channeling her creative side, she founded a community of artists and writers determined to make a difference in the lives of fellow veterans. In finding a community in writing about these experiences, did you feel like you were taking some of that power back? Oh, yeah. I was getting my identity back. So because I was in a war and I'm a human, I feel this way. I am hurt by it. I am affected by it. And I use how it affects me in my work, in my poetry, in my teaching. What do you learn about yourself about the words that come out onto that page? It's like meeting myself for the first time, no matter what mood I'm in, too. I'm like, oh, that's how I'm feeling. That's what I'm dealing with. That's what's underneath all the rage or the sadness or the smile or whatever it is. And I can see it. And we're holding this space, not carrying each other's burdens, but we're listening empathetically. We're just we're reframing everything to help help people thrive. We honor military personnel who died in service of their country on Memorial Day. We also remember all who served, including their families. To close our program, ABC's Christopher Watson, with a very personal recollection of when his own father went off to war. I don't remember when I was told my dad was going to Vietnam. It's always seemed odd to me that I have no memory of that moment. You'd think being told that your dad's going off to war would make an indelible impression. 
But I was nine years old, and Vietnam was just a word, really. We all knew there was a war there, of course. You couldn't be a kid living on a military base in the early 70s and not know at least that. I do remember when Dad left for Vietnam, April 27, 1971, a Tuesday, two days after his 37th birthday. I remember being sad. My two sisters and I complained that we didn't want to go to school that day, but Mom said we had to. Only later did I imagine how difficult that had to have been for her, consoling her children on the night before her husband went off to war, the last night she'd spend with him for a year, or maybe forever. Dad spent the first three months of that year in Da Nang and the remainder at Tonsonut Air Base just outside of Saigon. Mom wrote him 25-page letters at the dinette table almost every day, the envelopes bulging like pillows. She baked him chocolate chip cookies by the pound. We kids recorded Dad's favorite country albums on an old GE cassette player the size of a shoebox, propped against the console stereo speaker, careful not to make any noise and spoil the recording. A letter from Dad was like Christmas. Mom would read them to us. There was always an individual message for each of us kids, and more than a few pages that Mom would set aside without sharing, after pausing to scan them silently. I remember the day Dad came home, April 16, 1972, a Sunday. Mom drove the hour to Raleigh-Durham Airport in the big 68 Pontiac Catalina, all of us dressed in our church clothes. We watched the stairs roll up to the plane, the door opened, and then out came Dad. He spotted us immediately through the terminal glass and waved, grinning. I remember being surprised by how much thinner he was, and how gray his hair was, silver on both sides. It hadn't been when he left. The first thing Dad did was crush Mom in his arms and kiss her like I'd never seen him do before. And young as I was, that's the moment I first understood that they had a life together that didn't include us kids. Dad didn't say a word to me about Vietnam until five years later, the summer of 77. I was 15, contemplating my future, thinking about the military. Maybe that's why he finally shared stories, unprompted, every afternoon for a week. Some were funny or bawdy, some cautionary, some heartbreaking, a few of them frightening, like lying under his bunk the first night there, helmet and flak jacket on, as shells exploded just yards from his hooch, thinking, he told me, what the hell am I doing here? He was serving, fulfilling an oath, while his wife did the same back home. Dad retired from the military the next year at the rank of Chief Master Sergeant after two years in the Army and 22 in the Air Force. Proud to have served, he always said, though Vietnam left him with questions. None he shared, beyond that single admission to me, nor did he talk much about his time there after that. I don't think he avoided it. He was doing his job, and that job was done. Dad's been gone now nine years this June, and I miss him every day. Grateful for what he taught me. Proud of who he was and to be his son. Thankful he got to come home. Honor, Hope, and Healing was presented by ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. 
But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 